It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Do I Suffer from Rapture Anxiety? Part 3. Coming up in this episode, we're coming to the full conclusion of our detailed study and critique of the rapture teaching. The elements have been complex, the study has been deep, but all of this reveals a clear and scriptural conclusion. So, let's finish this. Here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host, for over 20 years. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for today's episode? 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. The rapture is a controversial teaching that has its basis in one short set of verses in 1 Thessalonians. It's a teaching that has a wide spectrum of interpretations and applications. This teaching tightly unites those who believe in it, and more and more it terrifies many who have some association with it. In parts one and two of our three-part series, we began systematically walking through the scriptures in question. As we have attempted to clearly define each element contained in these scriptures, we have seen many of the contradictions and inconsistencies with this rapture teaching rise to the surface in part three. So we'll closely look, in part three, we'll closely examine what it means to be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Our only objective is to adhere to what the scriptures really teach and walk away from everything else. The title of our series about rapture anxiety comes from people who say they're experiencing anxiety, depression, and even paranoia from this rapture teaching. Adults talk about what it was like growing up in the homes where the Left Behind book series, dramatizing the rapture, were taught as if they were real. And we found one poignant blog from a man named Dan Foster on medium.com that sums up how people, many of these people feel and why the anxiety. So throughout this episode, we're going to read a few excerpts about what he wrote about growing up in the 80s and 90s. Let me start with this. He wrote this, planes fall from the sky. Doctors disappear in the middle of surgical procedures. Families are torn apart. Economies collapse. The world descends into utter chaos. All those wicked atheists, agnostics, and people of other religions are struck by the daunting realization that they were wrong and are now staring down the barrel of eternal damnation. As children, we were fed these left-behind stories in a steady stream. Although fiction, they were presented as a kind of prophetic story about real future events. From the moment I was old enough to understand, I was taught that the rapture was something that could happen at any moment. True Christians would be taken up into heaven by Jesus Christ, while the rest of humanity would be left behind to suffer. I was taught to avoid sin, because what if the very last thing I did before Jesus returned to earth was some kind of horrible sin? What if I was caught in the very act? What if I wasn't forgiven at the moment of Jesus' arrival? We're going to drop back on his story as we proceed, but isn't that, you can just feel the anxiety. Well, and... (laughs) It's almost hard to fathom that 
scripture, God's holy plan, could in any way, shape, or form cause such anxiety when we know what God's plan really is. And that's why we're taking three parts to go through this very, very detailed study of this rapture teaching. So I'm glad you're bringing that up. We need to continue to revisit it and remind ourselves of what the scriptures really teach. Jonathan, let's go into the context scriptures here, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 18. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So there's a lot of details in these scriptures, and in the last two parts of the series, we've gone through many of those details. So we want to briefly recap those details as we go on to the last portion of these scriptures. The Apostle Paul, first part of the recap, he wrote 1 Thessalonians to encourage those brethren as they were newer to Christianity. In chapter 3, he expressed his joy in them and encouraged them by teaching them about the future life of all the faithful. In chapter 4, Paul delves into the reuniting process that the true church will experience. So, Jonathan, let's go back into 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, just a couple of verses before you started, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So, the purpose of this letter is to encourage to hope not, as you read from that blog, Julie, not to scare with violence and trauma. Paul's message has nothing to do with anarchy, the time of trouble, or end times. Those in the church of Thessalonica were concerned because some of their members died before Jesus returned. Will those who died miss out? Paul is saying, no. When Jesus returns, they will be raised to be with Jesus. This was an encouragement to that church, knowing that they would be reunited with their loved ones. And, and this reuniting would take place at the return of Jesus. Again, this is a recap of what we've gone over. So, Jonathan, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, and then what—and and some details on it. And this is from the Rotherham version. For this unto you do we say, that we, the living, who are left unto the presence of the Lord, shall in no wise get before them who have fallen asleep. Jesus' presence is not a moment in time, but a process of time that is explained in three phases. First phase, Jesus and Paul both told us that Jesus' presence begins in a thief-like manner. Second phase, Paul speaks of the manifestations of Jesus' return as targets for the faithful to watch for. Third phase, Jesus' return will be finally and fully recognized and disclosed to all of humanity. So we have to understand his return. All of these things don't happen in a moment. It's a process, an unfolding. And we went through that in detail in previous uh, podcasts on this uh, subject. Moving on to 1 Thessalonians 4.16 that said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, 
So we went over this, that the word shout is a cry of incitement or a command. And this command is given upon his return, focused on gathering up his church. This shout or command is something that Jesus himself described when he spoke about all hearing his voice and coming forth out of the grave. Uh, we quoted John 5, 28 and 29. But to know that this command is not a literal earthly shout, rather it's a miraculous command to bring the faithful Christians out of death and into spiritual life. So, descend from heaven with a shout, a spiritual command, not an earthly command, but a spiritual command. Again in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, focusing on with the voice of the archangel. This voice of the archangel is similar to the command for the true church to be raised from the dead. It is the voice of God's authority coming through Jesus when he returns. It is not an earthly voice, but it commands world events to open the door for Israel's reestablishment as a sovereign nation. So it sounds like a lot of noise is being made, but it's noise in the spiritual realm for things that we can't see necessarily happening here on earth. First Thessalonians 4.16 continues with, And with the trumpet of God. And we talked about how Israel sounded the Jubilee trumpet every 50th year, it was really an amazing time. It signaled a year of rejoicing and the returning of those things that had been lost to God's original equality among the 12 tribes of Israel. And that was explained in Leviticus 25, 8 to 10. So with that explanation in mind, this pictures, this Jubilee trumpet pictures, the trumpet sounding for the great time of restoration of what was once lost to begin unfolding. And this is the great restoration that the Jubilees pictured. And we see that very clearly in Acts chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And this is from the New Living Translation. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah, for he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. So God's kingdom on earth begins to be set up with small pieces and, and sometimes unnoticeable details, things happening in the spirit realm that we are, we're not even aware of sometimes, as we've seen. Uh, when, when, and this is happening when the true church has its change, as described in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty two, and we'll be reading that verse in just a moment. Uh, continuing with 1 Thessalonians four sixteen, it says, And the dead in Christ will rise first. This verse does not specifically say that it's an instantaneous time frame. And how do we know for sure? Well, there's there's three things that we need to go over. First, on that last episode, we spent some time on 1 Corinthians 15, 23, where it talks about the order of the resurrection. We have Christ as the head of the body, the church. He's raised first, then his followers or first fruits, and the first of those being those who died before his return. And Julie, if there were first fruits, that means there are all other fruits or after fruits. Mm -hmm. we, we need to remember Jesus' sacrifice was for all. So there's no need for anxiety over the false teaching of the rapture. The world, the after fruits, will be blessed later. That's a good point. So second, we know that this does not have to be instantaneous, this raising in the same moment event. We have 1 Corinthians 15, 52 from Rotherham. It said, during the last trumpet, for it shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So during the last trumpet means during the process 
that the trumpet has started. It's a period, again, as you said, Jonathan, a period of time, not a moment in time. And then third, we know that this is a miraculous power from God working through Jesus and is invisible to human perception. So the dead in Christ rising first is a wonderful beginning, and we don't even know what's happening. And that, you know, and that's the beauty of how God's plan unfolds. Sometimes it goes on behind the scenes, and you just you're not able to see it with your human eyes and hear it with your human ears. Let's go back to First Thessalonians four, but verse seventeen. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. Now, if we read the verse with the traditional rapture thinking in mind, we can easily conclude that those who slept in Christ are all raised in an instant, and then we who remain in the next instant will be snatched up to be with them. Let's start with the first word of this verse, the word then. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. Then is not, and let me repeat, not showing an immediate time connection, but rather it is showing a specific order of events. The word means afterwards. And that's an important transition. Then, afterwards. It's not simultaneous, but it's afterwards. Well, we didn't get very far with First Thessalonians 4.17, <laughs> so let's finish it. Then, we who are alive and remain will be caught up. We talked about how this phrase gets confused with other verses that teach different things, but might sound the same, like Matthew 24, 40. That says, then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left, but this is not the rapture. So first of all, when I read that, then there'll be two men in the field, that's a completely different Greek word. It doesn't mean afterwards, like it does in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Here it means at that time, a connected event. Second, the word taken here has a very different meaning than the word for caught up in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. The Greek word translated into English as taken means to receive near, to associate with oneself, as in, I'm going to take you with me. Caught up means seized to carry off by force, and caught up and taken aren't synonymous or interchangeable words. So now we really need to focus on those words, caught up. That's the big one and the next on our agenda. That's right. That's coming right right away. That's coming. Caught up, this being snatched. What does that mean? How do we put it in perspective? So this has been a recap of what we've looked at thus far in these First Thessalonians 4 scriptures to understand what they mean versus what this rapture teaching is implying. So, Jonathan, as we do a rapture reassessment, what do we have? Up to this point, it has become apparent that what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4 does not in any way support the rapture teaching. On the contrary, Paul is describing an encouraging, uniting of all the faithful in Christ in a spiritual environment. This uniting has nothing to do with any form of instant anarchy for those who are left behind. And this is such an important point. And, and again, go back to that, that uh, the, the reading, Julie, you did at the very beginning of the, of the podcast. People have this tremendous anxiety over this, but the scripture is not showing that to be true. The rapture teaching is complex and unsettling. Thankfully, we have not yet seen any scriptural proof that it's real. Doesn't Paul saying that 
those who are alive will be caught up together with those who are raised imply some kind of cataclysmic event? Okay, this certainly is a valid question. It is. The key to its answer is to focus on what the Apostle Paul is saying without reading preconceived ideas into it. As we've already established the context of this verse, we can now concentrate on what the words actually mean within its within their larger context. And remember, context is everything when you're trying to understand scriptures. Let me go back to Mr. Foster's blog quote on his experience. He continues with this. Far too many years later, I realized that my conversion to Christianity had been done under duress. I was pressured. I was emotionally manipulated. I was presented with an impossible choice, and I chose the path that I thought would deliver me from the nightmarish scenario presented to me from the pulpit. I didn't love Jesus. I was simply following Jesus to avoid punishment, to escape the flames, and not be left behind. Man. I mean, think about that. Jesus says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. That is not what that that gentleman is describing. It's an entirely different scenario. If we are bringing people to Christ because we're making them afraid, we're not repeating, we're not living the words and the intentions of our Lord Jesus. So stop. It just doesn't fit. Let's get into what we need to talk about here in, 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 in relation to 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Jonathan, let's, let's move forward with this. Sure. And we're going to read verse 17. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Now, there's a lot to discuss here. The elements of caught up, together, clouds, and air. So all of those pieces. So Let's put it, let's set some groundwork. Remember, then, the word then means afterwards. We who are alive and remain refers to all of Jesus' faithful disciples who are living during his return. We've already established that the return of Jesus begins in stealth mode, quietly, over time grows in its ability to be perceived. This coupled with then, meaning afterwards, takes the immediacy of the rapture teaching right out of the verse. It's just not there. Afterwards, it's not an association of instantaneously, but afterwards. Paul's not saying that we who are alive will meet those who have been dead and raised all in one instant. So if I'm understanding this right, Paul wanted to reassure people that during Christ's return, God would reunite believers who were alive with believers who had died. And so that way, the dead in Thessalonica wouldn't be left behind anyway, in any way, and that would be a comfort to those who were alive. Exactly. He's, okay. he's, he's talking to them in relation to their personal experiences and showing them prophetically what's going to happen, and it's supposed to bring them joy. So let's focus on caught up. We who are alive and remain be caught up. In part two, We alluded to the fact that this word for caught up has a very specific meaning of immediacy, but it needs to be taken in its appropriate context. So, Jonathan, what does it mean? It means to seize, and the Thayer's Greek-English lexicon defines it to seize, carry off by force, proverbial to rescue from the danger of destruction. Now, we have two examples of this word. First, Matthew 13, 19 from the King James Version. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understand it not, 
Then come the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. So this is the parable of the sower and the seed that falls by the wayside. And Jesus says in the parable that Satan snatches it up. And that's what it says. He catches away the seed before it has any chance to have any positive uh, long-range effect on those that that seed uh, came in contact with. So Satan quickly will steal the gospel away from those who randomly hear it. No, there's no devious process here. There's just a grab-and-run strategy. That's what he's doing in this particular thing. It's an instantaneous grabbing away. Let's look at another example of this word for caught up, or in, in, as in the Matthew verse, catcheth away. And this is in Jude chapter 1, verse 23. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. So that word pulling is that same word for caught up or catching away. And think about this. When someone's spiritual life is faced with sure tragedy and we see something happening, do we just sit around and say, yeah, you know, maybe we better think about this? Or do we run to pull them out of the fire? That's what it means. It's this, it's this instantaneous working hard to change something, to change an environment immediately. Now, this word is used many, many more times in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, in, in the bonus material on CQ Rewind, uh, we've got all of these listed out, so you can just check them out for yourself and see how this particular word is used. And to get the CQ Rewind show notes, you can go to ChristianQuestions.com or on our YouTube channel and our app. So, But Rick and Jonathan, some people who believe in the rapture as the removal of people from earth to heaven, they cite Acts 3 39 as support. And that's the one, it says in part, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch no longer saw him. Because that word snatched is that same Greek word we're talking about here that's translated caught up in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. So does that prove that the faithful saints are snatched up to heaven? Of course, the problem with that is that the next verse, Acts 40, tells us that Philip moved about 19 miles away. He wasn't transported to heaven, and it just implies a sudden departure, and maybe not even a miraculous one. It might be that just through the power of the Holy Spirit, he perceived that he needed to leave immediately. And Rick and Julie, they also quote 2 Corinthians 12, 2-4, Paul's experience of being caught up into the third heaven which we understand to be a vision and not a physical removal from the earth. But because this phrase caught up, it does have an immediacy attached to it. What is it referring to in 1 Thessalonians 4.17? Are all living Christians immediately snatched up in one fell swoop? And it's explained by Paul in the 1 Corinthians 15th verse, um, the chapter, and we have so often referred to that in this study, verses 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, meaning in that long sleep of death, but we will all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So this is important to understand because it's a parallel scripture to the 1 Corinthians 4.17 scripture that we're discussing with caught up. It says we will not all, all sleep, and, and Jonathan, I'm glad you added that comment, in that long sleep of death. It is comparing that to a momentary change. So that's the comparison. When one dies, they slept in that long sleep of death. Here you have a momentary change when one dies. So 
The fact that we shall not all sleep but rather be changed indicates a plucking out of the faithful ones out of the clutches of the sleep of death, out of the clutches of that long sleep that you just described. This is not a plucking of all the living Christians out of the clutches of death simultaneously. Rather, it's describing that these faithful ones will not sleep in death as those of the previous 2,000 years did. Neither these 1 Corinthians verses nor the 1 Thessalonian verses allude to this plucking happening all at once to all living Christians. But it is a snatching out. It's individual, and it works on the basis of individual faithfulness. Interestingly, the word cemetery is taken from the Greek word komaterion, meaning sleeping place. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Cool. Um, Interesting. So during Jesus' return, each faithful person you're saying who dies is resurrected as a spirit being. So the immediacy part of getting caught up in this change to a spirit being, it's at the moment of death. In other words, that twinkling, that's the immediacy. There aren't some church members who don't die because they all die like Jesus did. You know, let's make it simple by harmonizing other scriptures. Revelation 2.10, be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. And continuing in 1 Corinthians 15, 53 through 58, for this perishable must put on imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And let's pause right there, Jonathan, for a moment, because it's talking about our perishable lives putting on the imperishable gift of immortality. And look, immortality cannot be inherited by a human being. It's not possible. And that's why you have to have the change. And that's why, Jonathan, when you quoted that Revelation scripture, it's so important. You have to die. The human life has to end so the spirit life can be given that immortality. It has to be death. And that's why the apostle in this verse says... He quotes the, the, the Old Testament verse, death is swallowed up in victory. Not changing is swallowed up, not humanity is swallowed up, death is swallowed up. So yes, you have to die. Uh, <laughs> this is encouraging. You have to die. I keep saying it. You have to die. <laughs> but there is great encouragement in this. Let's, let's read verses 55 to 58. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be sad, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So Paul continues, and again, quoting Old Testament scripture, O death, where is your sting and where is your, 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 where is your victory? So what it's saying is, you know, the sting, think about it from the, the perspective of the, the brethren in the Thessalonian church. They had lost some of their loved ones. They were confused and a little bit concerned. Okay, they died. Jesus hasn't returned. What, what, what happens here? And the apostle is saying, no worries. He's saying that they who sleep will be raised at Jesus' return, and then all others will be, in their own order, caught up to be with the Lord, and the sting of death is no more. You can't say, oh, they died. You say, oh, they're alive. That's what 
this is talking about. They have to die before they're given this glorious, glorious life. Jesus had to die. Jesus was a man. We should expect no less for any of us. So Jonathan, as we look at this being caught up in our rapture reassessment, what do we have? Being caught up specifically means to be snatched away quickly. The beauty of using these particular words shows God's power and attentiveness. He is making a promise to those faithful disciples who are living at the time of Jesus' return and then die. His promise is to snatch them out of death at the moment of their death. Why? Because their Lord has returned and there is no need for them to wait in the sleep of death for their uniting with him. Oh, death, where is thy sting? It doesn't matter anymore because Jesus has returned and he has begun the work and he's bringing those faithful to be with him. What a glorious, hopeful thought this is. This, this thought of individuals not waiting in the sleep of death, is, it's, it's exciting. It shows God's power and the fact, the fact that his plan is unfolding. This is encouraging. But the rapture teaching focuses on being caught up together. Doesn't together change things? You are relentless, my friend. (laughs) Once again, this is a relevant question. As we shall see, the answer again lies not only in the meaning of the word, but also in its usage. Remember how specific we found the Apostle Paul to be in his description here. All of what he is teaching in these verses is connected to the rest of his letters. We just saw that by looking at 1 Corinthians 15. We just need to pay attention to the big picture and put the details together accordingly. Before we jump back in, let me read a little bit further on the Dan Foster blog quote here. I arrived at a troubling conclusion. The church's primary weapon to achieve many of its goals is fear. Fear controls the masses. Fear sells. Right now, there are millions of people across the world who are terrified of an event called the rapture, which they believe will come like a bolt out of the blue, wrecking havoc and leaving immeasurable suffering in its wake, but only for those who are left behind. Man, I, I, I cannot even fathom living with that kind of fear. Being a, quote, God fearing, God reverencing person and understanding and seeing God's plan, that is so far-fetched, so far away from how God actually works. Folks, if you have had this rapture teaching in your, in your heart and your mind and, and you're, you're concerned, please, please, please listen to the three-part series. Listen to how it dismantles itself at, when it's faced with the context and the meaning of what the Apostle Paul is saying and the meaning of the words. There's just so much here that you need to absorb. So what about this word together? Does it mean simultaneously or in association with? The word together means properly at the same time, but freely used as a preposition or adverb denoting close association. (laughs) So Rick and Julie, it can mean both. (laughs) That's no help because people who believe in a rapture say it means at the same time. In other words, all the faithful Christians, those who died, those living at the time of his return are taken to heaven all at once. Here you're saying that the Greek word for together could support that at the same time. Well, Well, that would mean that everyone would have to die in the same instant to make that possible. 
That's true. That has certainly hasn't happened. And I think as the faithful die, we believe they're resurrected individually. So, but what evidence do we have of that? Well, and, and that's, that's the, the important part here, is we want to understand what these, the, the, what's happening. There is no allusion to all of those remain having to die, just like you said, Jonathan, instantaneously. There is no allusion to that anywhere in Scripture. Anywhere. Let me repeat that. Anywhere. They read it into these verses because it ends up being a convenient tool. Now look, when you say they shall uh, be caught up together and you're not interested in what the words really mean, I could see how you could twist that into becoming that, but it doesn't mean it. The scriptures simply don't talk about it. It's an individual walk. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. It's always to the individuals, and they each need to be faithful in their own time. So we need to put that all in perspective. Let's go back, Jonathan, to the next piece in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Okay. We absolutely believe that the Apostle Paul used this word together, the one that could mean at the same time or in close association with. We believe that he used this word together in the sense of close association, absolutely, positively, unequivocally. And he didn't mean at the exact same moment or time. Why do we believe that? Well, there's two ways we want to look at proving that. First of all, every single time the Apostle Paul uses this word, he uses it in the same way, in the close association way. And we've, there are several times he uses it. We're just going to give two examples at this point. So, Jonathan, let's go to that first example. Romans 3, verse 12 from the King James Version. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So in that verse, they are together. They are in close association with one another. They've, they've all kind of joined into the same thinking, become unprofitable. It's not an instantaneous moment. It is a process of association. And just our other example, Jonathan, is uh, Philippi, uh, Philemon, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 1, verse 22. But withal, prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. Now, the word withal is a word we don't hear often. It means in addition, as a further factor or consideration. Jonathan, you just read from the King James Version. Now, in some translations, and this kind of threw me for a minute, withal is instead translated at the same time. Right. And here we're saying the word doesn't mean at the same time. It literally is saying at the same time. But this can be confusing. But the context tells us that it doesn't mean instantaneous. Rick, as you were saying, it means in association with. So, for example, if I say at the same time you're here, I'm going to wash the floor, chop the vegetables and serve dinner. It, it doesn't mean I'm going to do all these at the exact same moment like an octopus but I'm going to do them in all close association of time. I'm going to do them together during the time frame that you're visiting. Please help. Grab a dish rag. Well, actually, I'd kind of like to see you try to do that. That, that would be a, a fascinating. Sometimes women feel that this is exactly what we're doing. <laughs> okay, that's a subject for a different podcast. But, yes, sir. <laughs> but, you, but you're right. The, the idea is that 
the apostle uses the word specifically, and he uses it in Romans and Colossians and 1 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy and Philemon. So he uses it in many different contexts, but he's always talking about the association with. So we need to get that in our minds. You want to think the way the apostle Paul thinks? Then pay attention to the way the apostle Paul writes, and you can think the way he thinks. So we've got the in association with laid out. And the second proof that we want to look at is this last phrase of the verse uh, that we're, we just read clearly lends itself toward the association definition because at the end of the verse it says, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So when it says we'll be caught up uh, together in a close association, and so we'll be always with the Lord. It fits, it flows, it makes the sentence make sense. So we have caught up and together. Those are the two words that we've been looking at the last couple of segments. We can see through scriptural reasoning that this phrase really means that those who are still alive when the dead in Christ are raised will have the unique privilege of dying but not having to sleep, not having to wait in death for their spiritual life to begin. The verse is saying that as each member of these end-of-the-age faithful ones completes their individual walk with Jesus— They join those who have gone before them, not simultaneously, but as each is proven faithful individually and dies. Rick, but where do they join them? They join them, according to the scripture, in the clouds. Now, what clouds? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, in the clouds. Yeah, that sounds like, what are you talking about? Not heaven, okay. Right, not heaven, in the clouds. And we're going to see that these clouds are symbolic clouds. And why would we say that? Because there are clouds in the sky, and you can say, well, aren't they in those clouds? Hang on to that thought, and let's take a look at some scriptures, because we see them as symbolic. The night before Jesus' crucifixion, he was on trial, illegally, I might add. He was on trial, and he's before the high priest, and the high priest is is demanding that Jesus say something essentially according to an oath. And that's the reason Jesus responded, because he was going to fulfill the requirements of the law when asked a question like that. So let's take a look at Matthew 26, 63 and 64, because Jesus mentions clouds. But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see, and here he quotes from Daniel 7.13, which we'll talk about shortly, the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, Jesus told them of his return, how he would have God's authority and come in the clouds of trouble in heaven, which symbolize the spiritual controlling powers over earth. Clouds are a clear symbol of trouble in the Bible, Zephaniah 1, 14 and 15. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness. Okay, that doesn't sound very comforting. It's not. So (laughs) this is the description that no one wants to go through that people link back to the time of the supposed rapture. So we know there's going to be a time of trouble. There's a day of wrath as part of the end times. And Jonathan, you read that so scarily. (laughs) Can you address (laughs) this 
fear? How, why is this not part of First Thessalonians? So here's the thing. And again, back in First Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul is very specifically comforting those who had lost loved ones, those who were also other faithful Christians, and saying, look, don't worry, you will be re- reunited with Jesus. And he talks about that, that uniting with Jesus and being reunited all together at the return of Jesus. And we know that Jesus returns during a time of trouble. And it is a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. But it is not an instantaneous momentary thing that it all happens all at once. The clouds are gathering clouds. You know, when a storm comes, it just doesn't suddenly, it's not suddenly sunny, and then you have a storm on top of you. You have the gathering of the clouds, the thickening of the clouds, the darkening of the clouds. During all that whole process, this is all happening. The, the, those who were sleeping in, in Christ were raised first, and then as each is faithful, they, are, they continue to be raised. The final of the true church are raised before the, 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 the most serious trouble. It's very, very true. But the thing is that it's not a kind of trouble that is going to bring the world to an, an unretrievable end. What it does is it brings this world to an end. And we're going to get into this actually in the next segment. And we're going to see that these clouds are symbolic of coming trouble, of gathering trouble, but it's also part of the taking down of Satan's kingdoms. And that, Satan's kingdom, singular, sorry. So yeah, there's trouble, but it's not the focus. And the trouble is not the thing. The trouble does come. We know that. We've, we've done many, many podcasts on the time of trouble. What we want to understand is the comfort is that God's plan is unfolding. And trouble or not, once it starts unfolding, you can't stop it. And in God's plan, you have Jesus himself, and we talked about this in, in one of the previous uh, 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 parts of the series, calling the dead from their graves one by one by one. So you may have trouble, and the rapture folks make that trouble the end. The trouble is actually just a beginning of something glorious, because it's the crumbling of what is, so what can be replaces it. Yes, there's trouble, but it's not the end, because the kingdom of God comes to earth. So put it in its appropriate perspective. So these clouds— these clouds were prophesied as being part of the establishment of God's kingdom through Jesus. And, and Jonathan, you'd mentioned that uh, Jesus himself was quoting from Daniel 7.13. Let's go to Daniel 7.13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So why don't the folks who believe in the rapture quote that verse? That's what I want to know. They want to talk about clouds and cataclysmic events and all of that stuff? Well, look at this. It says, he comes in clouds, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him as dominions everlasting. That's glorious. Yeah, there's trouble. But you see how short it is in relation to the glory that follows? That's the message. That's what we need to hold on to. This is not a message of fear. It is a message of hope on every level. Now, 
We've talked about a lot of details here. And with all we've examined so, so thoroughly debunking the rapture, we need to ask the question, where did the rapture teaching actually come from? Julie, where did it come from? First, it's important to say that we don't want to get our religion secondhand from movies and novels. And the word rapture isn't in the Bible or in the ancient Greek, and Jesus never spoke of a rapture. But the words caught up in English that we've been talking about, it comes from the Latin Vulgate translation of the ancient Greek from around 400 AD. So in Greek, the word is harpazio, harpazo, see how good I am in Greek? Um, <laughs> sources quote various forms of the same Latin verb that means to seize, raptura, rapturus, rapimur, they've got all these words for it, abduct or snatch away and so on. So the ancient Greek to ancient Latin to English. There's a few degrees of separation from the original Greek. The teaching of the rapture, it's generally credited to a 19th century theologian named John Nelson Darby, who believed he discovered a new truth. This was picked up by a man named Schofield, who distributed a study Bible in 1917 and had a very short footnote, a little study note, with a reference on this caught up, and that got taken and uh, expanded. And then it was dramatized in a book interpreting Bible prophecy back in the 70s called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. Interesting fact, in the 1970s, it said that that book outsold about the Bible, outsold the Bible most of that decade. And then, of course, these infamous left behind books that Jonathan talked about. There's 16 of them from the 1990s in their movies. They've sold over 63 million copies. So it solidified the teaching with a little Hollywood spin. So perhaps subconsciously, some have formulated their understanding based on fictional dramatizations. That's a pretty big, uh, a pretty big thing going on. And the fact that it is such a new thing, and it's so dramatic, and we're saying that the early church had no concept of it, even though the Apostle Paul taught it. You know, you're looking at the Apostle Paul's very words, and you're saying they completely missed it for, I don't know, 2,000 years. Right. It's yeah, simply just... not written in Scripture. So that helps us to put this whole picture into a stronger, stronger perspective. Thank you for that background and that history. So, Jonathan, as we've looked at this rapture reassessment, what do we have? The Scripture shows us that being caught up together is a statement of assurance that those Christians at the end of the age will not have to sleep in death. Instead, they will, upon death, be immediately resurrected to a spiritual life and a spiritual union with Jesus and all the faithful Christians who have gone before them. This all happens during the early stages of Jesus' return when the clouds of the time of trouble will cover all aspects of earthly life and existence. So there's a lot of moving parts here, but it is a glorious teaching that brings great hope. Clear scriptural understanding helps us see clear scriptural truth. All we have thus far seen is so contrary to that rapture teaching. We have covered a lot of ground in this series. Knowing what we know, how is all of this comforting and not traumatizing. Okay, this one I like. <laughs> Here we need to entirely circle back to where we began, which is the Apostle Paul's reason for writing this letter to the church at Thessalonica. What was the reason? Encouragement. This letter was not a doomsday prophecy for any who were not believers. It was an inspirational message for all who were and are 
believers. It's inspirational when you take it in its appropriate scriptural context. Here's how Mr. Foster closed out his blog, quote, So many choose to follow Christ to avoid such a horrible fate. The thing is, a human being will only follow another out of fear for so long before deciding to break free from their puritanical regime. Love, on the other hand, compels a person to follow indefinitely. Problem is that love takes longer to reap a harvest than fear, and the church has never been known for its patience. God is love. That's what the scripture says. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then the next verse, he sent his son not to judge the world, but to save it. The rapture has no business in scripture because God doesn't support it, period. So, Jonathan, let's begin to wrap this up. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17-18 Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet, meaning a friendly encounter, the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Well, meeting the Lord in the air gives us the sense of a joyous, in-person uniting together of Jesus and his faithful disciples. It does. It gives you this sense of how cool is this? And, and think about it, just, just to paint the picture a little bit further. You, you have the raising of all of those who slept for the past several thousand years, and they're there, and then as each one who is faithful unto death is raised, you have that joy all over again. And look, here's somebody else, the joy all over again. And look, here's somebody else, the joy all over again. It's just a wonderful, encouraging picture. So the question is, it says, we meet him in the air. Well, what does that mean? Bear's Greek-English lexicon defines it as the air, particularly the lower and denser air as distinguished from the higher and rarer air, the atmospheric region. Now, where is this? Is it where God is in heaven? No. So it's the unseen space in our atmosphere. What's interesting is there's a different Greek word translated into English as air that Paul could have used, but he chose this one, meaning the lower atmospheric region. The other word, um, it's a Strong's um, 3772. It can mean heaven, the abode of God, the universe, the starry heavens. In other words, higher than our atmosphere. Okay. So we've got in the air, not in heaven. This is important. Now, remember, why, why would it not be heaven? Well, think about this. We've already talked about this in part one and part two. Jesus returned from heaven, and his return is for the purpose of taking Satan's rulership away. Remember, he comes like a thief in the night in stealth mode, and he enters Satan's house without Satan knowing. So you got to ask the question, okay, where is this house? Well, let's think about that for a second. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air. Same word. So when you think about it, it tells you Satan's abode, if you will. It's perfectly sensible for faithful Christians to meet their Lord where he is taking Satan's kingdom from him, and to follow him in the work of tearing down evil and restoring that which God originally put 
in place. Well, I think one reason why many may be confused is because of the false doctrine of hellfire. People believe Satan is under the earth and not in the air. And what he is doing, and and what is he doing in the air? He's trying to maintain the power he has had for thousands of years before Jesus takes full control of the world. And that's why we pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So there's no scripture that really tells us exactly when the faithful enter heaven, or if they do it all individually or all together. It's just at this point, we're told in the scripture that they're in this atmosphere. They're basically their first work is going to be fighting Satan and tearing down his kingdom to make God's kingdom. Is right. that right? Yeah. So they're, they're raised to work. Uh, we know, and it's it's we we know in Revelation it talks about the the true church uh, being there for in in heaven for the wedding with with the bride and the bridegroom. So we know that they're all together in heaven at that point. But this this part of their spiritual life is with the Lord doing the work that needs to be done. You know, and so we put all this together, and the scripture ends at First Thessalonians four uh, seventeen. Scripture ends and says, "And so we shall always be with the Lord." So you meet Him in the air, and the point is, you're not going to always be there in the air with Him, but you will always be with Him from that point forward. That's the beauty of this. That's the encouragement that the Apostle Paul was giving them. Paul is showing us how our face-to-face uniting with Jesus will begin. He's not here showing us how it ends or how it continues and continues and continues and continues, but he's just showing us how it begins. So let's move forward to the last verse, verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. (laughs) Therefore, comfort one another with these words. It's interesting. The word for comfort here is the verb form of the word for advocate. The word is used in John 14, verses 15 to 17, and it's talking about the Holy Spirit coming to Christians. And this is the New International Version. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. So you have the spirit of truth, this advocate, this comforter. And we look at that and we always talk about the great comfort. Paul is saying comfort one another the same kind of way with these words. It is a beautiful connection. And it just helps us to understand these are inspiring words. There is no fear attached to any of this. It just gives us a connection of the encouragement here that we need to be holding on to, and that's what Paul's objective was. Jesus gave his disciples this comfort many times, especially at the end of his earthly life. He gently told us that death would have to come to all of us and that our faithfulness unto death would result in the privilege of being with him and being honored by God. If we look at John 12, 23 to 26, you'll see what I mean. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So you have all of those elements. You have the, the necessity of dying, the 
coming and being with Jesus and being honored by God in this whole process. This is just a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. There's more. The night before his crucifixion, he told us again uh, that we would have an eternal home with him. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now see, it's interesting, because we always look at these verses and we think, Jesus prepares a place for us, and as soon as we're raised, we're going to go to that place. Well, think of it this way. Jesus prepares a place for us. Yes, he does in heaven. In my Father's house are many rooms and mansions and so forth. But also, our place will be with him. And if he is doing the work of tearing down the kingdoms of this world and pulling it away from Satan, then we by rights must be with him. Where he is, we will be also. What a great comfort. And he's showing us that we'll be working together to fulfill the will of God. I mean, look, how much more glorious and inspirational can you get than being united with Jesus in the clouds of the trouble, pulling the, 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 the kingdoms of this world away from Satan so that God's kingdom can reign forever on earth. Amen. To me, that's what this is all about. And that God's plan is big enough to include every man, woman, and child who ever lived. Nobody's left behind, in exactly, other words. Exactly. There's still provision for each each person. Absolutely. So later that night when he prayed in Gethsemane, we remember how he spoke to the Father on our behalf about giving us the opportunity of heaven and his desire for us to be with him uh, with him there. Like you said, where he goes, we follow. John 17, 22 to 24. The glory which you have given me, I will give to them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. What Jesus promised would come to his disciples as a gift from God. The Apostle Paul, in our, in our readings in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, is accentuating this to the Thessalonians. He's showing us so much of the glory. Think about, I don't know what it looks like. I can't wait to find out by God's grace if I am faithful. But think about the glory of watching Jesus actually unfolding the will of God in the spiritual realm, however it works, and I have no idea, but doing that work and assigning parts of that work to all of those faithful Christians. Just think of the glory and the power that you witness as all of this unfolds and becomes the kingdom of God, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's what those scriptures are pointing us to. Let, let, let's finish with one last text from the book of James. As James honors God in his epistle, he references the role of the faithful which exists as a result of God's will and God's word. So the role of the faithful, James is explaining, it's because of God's will and his word that we even exist to do these things. Here's what James says in James 1, 17 and 18. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. 
in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be kind of a first fruits among his creatures. Think about that. And, and Jonathan, you said it much earlier in this podcast. If there's first fruits, there's after fruits. And what it's saying in James is by his will, God's will, by his word, and he brought us forth in truth to be the beginning of the glory of his kingdom. The rapture teaching doesn't address that at all. They leave it out. And it's too bad because you leave out the goodness of God and you try to create a God who is angry and vengeful. That God does not exist because God is love. He does get angry, but that anger is for the good of mankind, not to their detriment. Jonathan, let's wrap us up. Rapture reassessment. As we conclude, it is obvious the rapture teaching has no biblical foundation whatsoever. Its sole basis is the minds of men who took specific verses out of their clear context and applied erroneous meanings to them. The truth that we see is those misapplied verses shines a light of encouragement and excitement regarding God's plan for all. Jesus' faithful disciples are the first fruits of the invisible stages of Jesus' return and therefore the first fruits of his glorious kingdom. Now that is an encouraging message. Amen and amen. Folks, think about this very, very carefully. The teaching of the rapture does not have a basis in Scripture. You can look at some words and you can draw some conclusions, but when you look at what the Bible teaches, what we see is a very clear-cut teaching that this gathering together is individual and it's in its own time, and it's unfolding, and it brings God's kingdom on earth for every man, woman, and child who ever lived. That's encouragement. Think about it. Folks, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode or other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode, does my life have a motivating vision? Does my life have a motivating vision? We'll talk to you about that next week.